0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. A cyber attack on that colonial pipeline along the East Coast, leading to panic buying, gas shortages, and long lines, reminiscent of what Americans saw in the 1970s. Today, it is a reminder that America's supply chain is vulnerable. Here's President Biden at the White House.
1: Let me say that this event is providing an urgent reminder of why we need to harden our infrastructure and make it more resilient against all threats, natural and man-made. My administration is continuing uh, to safeguard our critical infrastructure, the majority of which is privately owned and managed, like Colonial Pipeline. Private entities are in charge of their own cybersecurity. And we need, and we have to, we know, we know what they need. They need greater private sector investment in cybersecurity.
0: Ahead on The Weekly, we look at the Colonial Pipeline cyberattack and why it had a ripple effect along the East Coast, why a barge ship stuck in the Suez Canal brought product transportation to a grinding halt for more than a week, and what this pandemic has taught us about the products we buy and how we get them. Our guest is Rob Hanfield. He is an expert on all of these topics as a professor of supply chain management at North Carolina State University. I began by asking him about the courses he teaches and what the rest of us can learn from him. Professor Hanfield, I I wanna begin with your title as a professor of supply chain management at North Carolina State University. I'm curious, what does your course look like? What do you teach?
1: So uh, I teach a class in uh, procurement or what they call acquisition in government. And uh, that has a lot to do with uh, contract negotiation, Um, managing costs in supply chains, but we also cover some aspects of uh, logistics and inventory management. Um, You know, what we're seeing today is a a real interest in this area of uh, purchasing and supply chain management, and so we spend a lot of time talking about the tools and the methods uh, that that organizations and governments use for purchasing goods and services. And, and so that's that's really the core of, of the MBA class that I teach.
0: Generally speaking, in terms of the U.S. supply chain compared to Western Europe or some Asian countries, how does the U.S. rank?
1: In terms of how well we manage our supply chain? Correct. So I think overall the U.S. does a pretty good job of it. Um, you know, I think every, every government is, is uh, faced with, you know, different kinds of, of challenges right now. If you look at the way the US handled the COVID crisis, uh, every country in the world was really facing many of the same problems that the US did. So I don't think we were really better or worse than anybody else, especially around uh, the COVID response. Uh, One of the things I will emphasize though is the US much more so than uh, a lot of other countries has outsourced a lot of their goods and services to Uh, low-cost countries, uh, especially in in Asia and lower-income, middle-income countries. And uh, that's a trend that's been going on for about 20 years. But a lot of other Western countries have been doing the same thing. So that's one of the reasons why we were uh, so exposed during the, uh, the COVID pandemic.
0: I want to come back to those issues, but clearly we have been dealing with long gas lines in many parts of the East Coast this past week because of the uh, what happened at the colonial pipeline. What does that tell you about America's energy infrastructure in general and the situation here in the East Coast in particular?
1: well i think I think it's fair to say, and everyone is admitting this that the uh, infrastructure of the pipeline system in the United States is aging. It's it's old. Uh, it was put in you know decades ago, and you know they've been um, you know refurbishing and, and doing a lot of maintenance on it. But um, you know there's parts of it that quite frankly need to be you know rebuilt. And and this is somewhat problematic because nobody nobody really wants a new pipeline in their backyard or a new refinery in their backyard. And yet uh, we really do need it. And and I think that's part of the uh, Biden infrastructure plans to start to look at some of those key elements. One of the other problems with the colonial pipeline is it's not just the uh, equipment itself, which is aging, uh, the pipeline itself, um, but also the information system that is used uh, to control it. And that's a very old system that they have. And these older systems are much more uh, prone or exposed um, to being hacked, uh, as as the Colonial Pipeline was in this case. Uh, having said that, I think it's also remarkable that you know it is the only pipeline that serves the East Coast. Um, you know, being in in Raleigh at North Carolina State, we've had gas stations, every gas station in the area is out of gas. I mean, of the gas stations in North Carolina are out of gas right now, which is just an incredible number. And so people are looking at resorting to bringing it up in trucks, you know, shipping it to ports. Uh, The fact is, those things are all much more expensive than actually putting it in a pipeline. Pipelines are the most efficient and also, by the way, the safest uh, means of transporting fuel. Uh, Yet people remain strongly opposed to them, like they did with the uh, uh, pipeline, you know, coming down from Canada, which is a bit of a mystery to me. Because I think pipelines are much safer and uh, much more efficient than other ways of transporting fuel around the country.
0: So, as somebody who understands this probably better than most people, how did we get to this point with colonial, in particular? Where were the where were the issues that that were not addressed by the company or by the government? that is responsible for this infrastructure?
1: Well, I, I think the, the, the company itself, you know, as I said, they um, they want to keep their costs low, so they, they do what they have to to maintain the pipeline. Um, what's also happened, I think, in general in the energy industry, you know, there, are, uh, there were other refineries uh, up in the East Coast, up in the New Jersey, New York area. A lot of those refineries um, went out of business. They went bankrupt. Uh, because they could not compete with uh, the pipeline uh, carrying oil from Texas up the East Coast. So we were really then you know, more and more dependent on uh, this single pipeline, which was in a sense almost a monopoly. And uh, the company, let's face it, did not invest in the infrastructure. Um, they did not invest in the uh, security systems. But I can't really blame Colonial Pipeline for that. I think that You know, almost every uh, energy company in America is guilty of that same thing of not really upgrading their cybersecurity.
0: A reminder, our listeners, we are talking with uh, Professor Rob Hanfield. He is a professor of supply chain management at North Carolina State University. And I guess what we saw this week with Colonial Pipeline is another example of how vulnerable we are here in the U.S., but, but even globally, and I point to what happened earlier this year with the Suez Canal, the ship that was essentially stuck that brought everything to a halt in terms of trade in that part of the world. Can you elaborate on those points?
1: Absolutely, Steve. So the the Suez crisis uh, happened a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a a very large um, ship that essentially, you know, the wind caught it and it turned sideways and it got stuck. Well, one of the reasons why it got stuck is the the ships, the ship itself is so enormous. And we're seeing a general trend in the ocean freight business that shippers are building ships that are larger and larger. 20,000 TEUs or, or larger now is, is commonplace. And as these ships get larger, they go slower. Uh, they, they actually do what they call slow steaming. So they, they go very slow to use less fuel. They, they carry uh, you know, more freight. They go to more, more ports. And so in general, they're getting slower. And that, that's not a good trend. I think what we're seeing increasingly is people want to see their shipments go faster, not slower. And uh, so, so that's part of the problem. The other problem is, you know, the, the, uh, the canal, the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, these are what uh, you call in supply chains bottlenecks. So if something goes wrong at those bottlenecks, all of the ships that are behind it get held up. Well, uh, as there was a surge in demand this year, uh, we saw the number of shipments coming over from uh, Asia in particular go up and up. So there were a ton of ships, at one point two or three hundred ships, stuck behind this large ship in the Suez Canal, holding, you know, trillions, billions or trillions of dollars' worth of freight that they were bringing over, you know, to different destinations. So it it exposed, you know, how fragile these these supply chains really are. We saw another similar type of incident with the uh, Texas uh, snowstorm. That essentially shut down a lot of the uh, petrochemical industry, which is located in uh, Louisiana and Texas. Well, every think about it. These petrochemical plants produce plastic. Plastic is used in pretty much everything, in packaging. So suddenly, supply chains all over the country were shut down because of a snowstorm going on in Texas. So, so again, another example of how fragile uh, our supply chains are and uh, in particular, they're more and more fragile because we have sort of consolidated uh, our requirements in different areas in, in you know, Southeast Texas and uh, in, in Asia, uh, in, in, in Latin America. And, and as we do that, we become more dependent on that and less, de- less able to uh, really you know, build things locally and, and source things locally, which I think is where we're starting to, to go now.
0: Dr. Hanfield, let me follow up on Texas, because it really was, you know, the triple threat. You talked about the deep freeze, the severe weather in Texas, a rise in COVID cases, and then the power grid unable to handle the increased demand.
1: Well, that that's exactly what happened is, um, you know, Texas, uh, they they had a system, an independent power grid, as you, as you point out. And uh, there was a federal requirement that said that they needed to have a certain kind of uh, safety equipment on on some of their uh, some of their power generation plants. well they said in texas you know that's a federal requirement it doesn't snow down here in texas we don't really need to invest in those well big mistake that's exactly what happened it shut down a lot of the grid and started to see electrical prices. on truck rides with three drivers.
0: apologize because I'm going to ask a simple question that may be a complex answer. But in the U.S., the supply chain essentially works until it doesn't. And so my question is, how do we prepare for when it doesn't?
1: Well, that's a great question, Steve. And it is something that uh, organizations are now starting to think about. Um, you know, they're starting to say, look, we need to have a backup plan. We need to have what they call a playbook. Uh, and a playbook is just that. It is a risk management plan. It's a way to react uh, when there's a disruption, an unexpected disruption. And it also involves typically mapping out, uh, you know, what they call sort of scenarios to, to figure out what are the kinds of things that could go wrong and where would be uh, where would be most exposed in our supply chain. So what that involves in some cases is doing what they call a supply chain mapping. And in a supply chain mapping, you map out your supply chain, you figure out not just where are our tier one suppliers, you know, our immediate suppliers, but what they call our tier two and our tier three, our, our suppliers of our suppliers, and our supplier suppliers, suppliers. And once you start figuring out where these suppliers are, you can start to say, ah, they're in places of the world where there are emergencies, where there are things that can go wrong. And therefore we either need to, you know, redesign our supply chain network, or we need to maybe carry some uh, stockpiles of inventory at strategic places in case something does go wrong. Of course, no one likes to invest in inventory you know, in case something goes wrong. It's not a very productive use of inventory. But, boy, when something does go wrong, you sure are glad you have that uh, stock gap measure there.
0: You teach business, but this is going to be a political question here in Washington, the partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans, the price tag of the president's infrastructure bill. It seems like all of this is going to cost money. Do you have a sense that the two parties can come together?
1: I, I think they would come together. And I think infrastructure is something that both Republicans and Democrats can agree on. You know, we've had some, some major infrastructure um, Challenges over the last few years, you know, bridges collapsing and, uh, you know, ports uh, being being stuck. And, and, you know, of course, this hack that shows that the uh, energy, uh, you know, the energy pipelines are not really all that secure. These kinds of things uh, really indicate uh, a crumbling infrastructure. Plus, you see a lot of the roads themselves that really require maintenance, and particularly in you know, the northeast where you get know, a lot of cold weather. So, so I think in those in those cases, people can agree, that is the role of government. Uh, infrastructure is something that we really need to be investing in. Um, people are also saying, well, do we need to invest in Wi-Fi? You know, why, why is internet capability something we need to invest in? I would argue that it is now a core part of our infrastructure, that everything today and in the future will be part of this internet of things and will be connected wirelessly to, to the internet. So, so I believe that infrastructure is, is all of those things. And, and people, you know, I think can, can argue about what should be in there and what shouldn't be in there. Uh, of course, there's, you know, the possibility of people's pet projects being included. But um, in general, I think this is a good, uh, a good thing. And I, I think both sides of the aisle can generally agree that infrastructure is good investment.
0: Let's turn to the companies, those companies that basically ship the products as they deal with unknown factors. how do they anticipate what might happen? What do you teach? What do you tell these companies? well as
1: as I said, the first thing you should do is is map out your supply chain again. Um, the second thing is to build out um, you know a risk mitigation plan so as you as you figure out you know, where our our product travels, how it travels. Where does it come from? Uh, who are the people that are handling it? Uh, what are the different types of risks that can occur? So there's there's a number of you know increasing risks that are that are really emerging today. You know, one is is counterfeiting. Um, are are people able to you know counterfeit our product? Are they uh, are there uh, you know cybersecurity risks? Are they able to hack into our networks and get our stuff? Um, plain old theft. You know are are people able to make off with our product or, or steal it and sell it on the, on the black market or the gray market. Um, and then there's just, you know, disruptions and you have, you have storms, you have, um, you know, political issues, you have uh, uh, earthquakes that, that can occur. And um, what, what organizations are also doing is they're investing in these real-time systems. And by that I mean real-time technologies that can show them what's happening around the world. And as they map out these supply chains and superimpose them, you know, geographically on different parts of the world, there are services like, for instance, uh, Resolink and Riskmetrics that will monitor news feeds. And these news feeds will tell you, ah, there's, you know, uh, there, there's been a, a dam that went down in China or, uh, you know, there's there's a political uprising in uh, in Taiwan today. Uh, so so it'll tell you when there are these events occurring, and it will map out well, what suppliers could be potentially impacted by these things, and what shippers and, and, and lanes could be impacted by these incidents. So organizations and, and managers get an immediate uh, event notice that says there's something wrong here. You better check into it. So a lot of times, you know, you might get a notice that that you look at and you say, Ah, oh, well. I think we're okay here you know we've got it covered and you know, we talked to some people it's all right but in other cases you know you you notice there's an event and you're able to move very quickly and that's an important feature of these um, supply chain uh, risk management systems the ability to act quickly uh, because if you act quickly you can move uh, you know rapidly to try to contain a situation uh, to put in a mitigation plan uh, to collaborate with, with your supply chain partners and, and figure out what you're going to do, uh, to, to see if you have alternative inventory somewhere else. Um, these kinds of things, I think, are, are really important. And increasingly, what you're also seeing, Steve, is that I, I mentioned collaboration. Collaboration is really key when you have a disruption, when you have an emergency. And the people that are seeing that right now are the automotive companies. You know, for years, the automotive companies thought they could sort of, um, you know, they had a lot of power, so they could, they could throw their weight around and, and get suppliers to do what they wanted to. Well, vehicles today, more and more of them, have a lot of uh, chips, a lot of electronics in the dashboard. And really, a lot of the big three and, and the other automotive companies thought they could sort of throw their weight around with the semiconductor manufacturers. Well, semiconductor manufacturers, their main Uh, customers are the electronics sector electronics goes out and buys two or three years worth of capacity from them and so they plan ahead and they have these long-term relationships Um, you know the 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 automotive companies thought they could you know pull the switch you know when COVID came along they said well we don't we're not gonna buy from you for a while because we think the you know sales will go down well sales didn't go down so when they went back to the chip makers and says, "Oh, we need you to ramp up again," guess what? Too late. We've already committed that capacity to somebody else to the electronic sector. So, so it, it, the relationships are really an important part of these supply chains as well. It's not just all about, you know, the numbers and the plans and the and the, and the software systems.
0: An interesting analysis. Let me remind our listeners that our guest is an expert on America's supply chain part of the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University. If you're looking to purchase something for the home, whether it's an appliance or furniture, you talked about automobile parts, COVID-19 has essentially disrupted that supply chain. Why? Why is it taking so long for people to place an order for that product to come to their home or office?
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right, Steve. And I've experienced this myself. You know, I think... uh, my daughter wanted to buy a bike or something. She was told, "Forget about it. You know, it's it's going to take probably a year back order just to buy a bicycle." Um, and and as you're saying, the parts for uh, washing machines, for appliances, for fridges, uh, they're they're out. You know, they're they're out. They're they're not available. What what happened? I think is during COVID, um, you know, demand for a lot of things went down. Some things went up, but. People were out of work, so they you know they were conserving, they weren't they weren't spending as much. And so all of these supply chains sort of slowed down. And they slowed down because also people couldn't come to work because of stay-at-home orders. Um, and uh, you know they, they depleted their inventory, they they tried to hang on to COVID to make it through. And as as people got vaccinated and we started to see, you know, life coming back into the economy. People started spending again. They started saying, oh, gosh, you know, maybe it's time to now go and, you know, replace that old washing machine or, you know, get a new bicycle or, uh, or you know, get, that, get, get, get it fixed. And these supply chains don't start on the dime. They, they take a while to get to go up. You don't step on the gas and they just start going. Um, you know, you have to get people in. You have to start up your equipment. You have to get raw materials. You have to order from suppliers. And, and so they they're sort of in a uh, a startup mode, if you will, and it often takes you know two or three months for them to really get back to full speed again. Um, and, and the other problem, of course, is is the labor issue, at least in the United States. Um, you know, we're we're not we're not seeing people go back to work as quickly, and uh, we're seeing the number of jobs go up. But partially, I think it was because of the uh, you know the rescue plan. Uh, some people I heard this. Some people saying, "Well, why do I need to go to work? I've got a nice, you know, check that will last me through a little while here, a nice unemployment check." In some cases, the unemployment check is greater than what they're actually getting paid at their minimum wage job. So there's there's a, a labor issue as well that's uh, slowing down some of these supply chains, and I think we'll get through that. We'll get through all of this. It's just a matter of time. Um, before we start to stabilize and and get
0: back to normal again. And you wrote about this extensively for Harvard Business Review. So looking ahead through the summer and into the fall, with everything that we have been talking about here today, what will it look like? What will the supply chain feel like and be like this summer and fall?
1: So I'm very optimistic that, uh, as I said, I think our supply chains will get back up to speed. Uh, I think we will still see, you know, some shortages. Um, I think we're starting to see, you know, new capacity also coming online. For instance, for vaccines, um, we're seeing new capacity come in in Q4 and Q1, uh, manufacturing capacity and and component capacity. I think we're also going to see all industries really start to pick up, Um, you know, automotive, industrials, consumer goods, Uh, and, and I think we're going to see the economy going full steam ahead. So, so I think all of these supply chains will, uh, sort of stabilize, uh, get back to full capacity and, and, and continue to to move forward. We will, we will likely see inflation. I mean, my, I think we're starting to see that, you know, with these shortages, we're seeing some short-term inflation, uh, that could go on a little more. So we could see prices begin to increase, um. As the costs and these supply chains start to go up, so I, I think uh, in general those are some of the big trends that we'll see.
0: And for the students that you teach, the next generation of experts in this area, what's the future hold for them?
1: Wow. Well, our students are, are in great shape. Uh, if you're a student uh, in supply chain management, you are in um, you're, you're doing really well right now. You've got several job offers. Um, because, you know, I think it's the people, it's people that operate these supply chains. It's not machines. It's not automation. And uh, what you're seeing with the young people coming out of supply chain programs today is they're really good at at analytics, they're really good at taking, you know, numbers and manipulating them and and visualizing them and and coming up with insights. And that's becoming a really important skill set because, as I said, you know, the the digital uh, revolution is occurring and it's occurring more and more in supply chains. The other thing I'd like to say is at NC State that one of the things that's unique about our program is we have students who work on projects with companies as part of their coursework. Uh, every undergraduate and MBA supply chain student actually does a 15-week project working on a supply chain problem. And for many of them, I think this is uh, this is really insightful because they, they're moving away just from a, a theoretical View of how supply chains operate, and they're delving into, you know, the problem. They're looking at inventory. They're looking at purchasing. They're looking at transportation. They're, they're looking at analytical insights into how to deal with these problems. And they realize that, you know, these problems are not uh, black and white. They're, they're generally gray. And, uh, you know, the, the data itself often isn't uh, very helpful. You have to really dig into it and, and clean it up and, and try to make sense of it. And I think those are the skill sets you need for uh, effective supply chain uh, management is, you know, the ability to be curious, the ability to solve problems, the ability to work with other people, and, and really the ability to delve into the data and try to make sense of it as well.
0: And finally, for you personally, why is this your area of expertise? Why do you teach this? Why did you study it?
1: Well, you know, I, I think I sort of just fell into this, Steve. You know, years ago, I... I was a math major as an undergraduate, um, statistics and, and I liked numbers. And, and then I, 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 ran my own business for a while and I started thinking about how these supply chains operate and, and how you had to you know manage these, these flows of material. So it became, uh, just really interesting. And I just was curious about everything that was going on. And I think that's, that's what kind of pulled me into it. And I still love it. You can probably tell I'm, I'm constantly, uh, uh, you know, uh, studying these problems and talking to different people, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm enamored with supply chains. I've been studying them for 30 years. And I'm still learning, so uh, that'll tell you something.
0: Well, we appreciate you sharing your expertise with our C-SPAN audience, Rob Hanfield. He is a professor of supply chain management at North Carolina State University and conducting this conversation while he's in the car. So we appreciate that as well. Professor, thank you for being with us.
1: My pleasure, Steve. And yeah, in your supply chain, you're you know, always on the move. So uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure, pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much.
0: And a reminder to be sure to listen and follow wherever you get your favorite podcast. C-SPAN's The Weekly, part of C-SPAN Radio. You can follow us on Twitter, at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.